You know, when I look back over the years of my life, Christmas has been, uh, and the Christmas season has been foundational for me as I understand my faith. The earliest messages I received about Jesus came through Christmas. You know, I grew up in an old school black Baptist church, and it is mandatory that every single church has a Christmas production put on by the youth department. Uh, so we had a youth uh, Christmas spectacular. Uh, it should have been called the Christmas Average because it wasn't, it wasn't that good. And um, every single year, we would put on a play, and I got a chance to play a role in these plays. And my mother told me, actually, that one year, I got the star role in the play. And it was a Tony Award-winning performance that I put on. Um, we have it on VHS for anybody who wants it. And every single year in the Christmas play, it would be exactly what you would expect from a kid's Christmas performance. There was Mary holding the baby. There was the three wise men bringing gifts of uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And of course, there was the manger where Jesus was laid. Now, the Christmas spectacular was not going for accuracy because if they were, the nativity scene that they laid out would not have been as pristine as it was presented that day, or the nativity scene as you see them at Target and other places you go shopping, it's not a pristine sight. As a matter of fact, it was meant to convey a different message to us, something that's a lot more disruptive and something that's actually a lot more shocking than we have come to know. Now, let me read you all a story in Luke to catch everybody up to speed. Luke is a historian and a doctor, and he, the way he presents stories are very intentional. Here's what Luke says about the birth of Jesus. He says, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who was the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and laying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to, the heaven, to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph, and pay attention to this line, and the baby who was lying in the manger. So three times Luke presents the same word, manger. And what Luke's readers would have noticed and heard is something very different than our modern ears here today. First off, a manger is not a suitable place for any baby to be laid down, let alone royalty. And Luke is trying to get the reader's attention. Now, what were mangers? Mangers were basically feeding troughs. They were places that held hay for large animals like cattle and horses and donkeys to come and to graze. Mangers were kept wherever livestock was kept, and wherever an, whenever an animal eats, wherever an animal eats, he also goes to the bathroom there. So mangers were places that were fit for slobbering animals as they ate and went to the bathroom. They were no place for royalty. And over and over again, Luke lets us know that where Jesus was laid was in this place. It would have grabbed their attention. You know, a couple of months ago, 
royalty came to Harlem. Uh, Harry and Meghan Markle came to Harlem, and they did all of the things that royalty does. Uh, they went to uh, Melba's, not Sylvia's. Uh, I'm sure they went to go see Dapper Dan on Lennox. They went to visit some schools, and they did all of the things that you would expect for royalty to do on a trip to any city. Now, imagine if you were reading the New York Times article about Harry and Meghan Markle coming to Harlem, and it said that they stopped off at 125th Street to go to the bathroom in the subway station. You'd be like, listen, that is no place for anybody. That place is for emergencies only. When that bathroom is open, which is very rare, it is a place you go in and you go out, and there's nobody who would intentionally go past that bathroom. Now, if the authors of the New York Times were to include a detail like that, you probably would stop reading the article because you would be so consumed with this very fact that this is no place for royalty to be. This is the level of shock Luke's readers would have had when they read this story about Jesus being laid in a manger. It was not a suitable place for any baby to be laid, let alone the one who was God who came to live on earth with us. The king of kings was, no, was not suitable uh, for a manger. No suitable place for him. So what is Luke trying to convey to his audience? What is Luke trying to convey to us today? It is a message about the manger that is far more disruptive than we have come to know it in sanitized nativity scenes. Here's a message of the manger, and here's where we're going today. If Jesus can rest peacefully in a dirty manger, then he can make himself at home in the mess that is your life and my life. If Jesus can rest peacefully in a manger, then whatever situation you find your life in, whatever mess you find your life to be in situationally, Jesus can be there and he can be at rest there. Now, I know that offends some religious people a little bit because that offends me at first when I think about it. God hates sin. God doesn't like to be around chaos. Why would God be around this intentionally. But the problem is, if you were to actually crack open the scripture and read it, you would see over and over again that Jesus, the things that repelled other people compelled Jesus. He's that good. One of my favorite stories is in Matthew 8, and it's a story about Jesus and a leper. Leprosy was one of the worst conditions and one of the biggest concerns in ancient Israel. It was a contagious bacterial infection that caused severe nerve damage, paralysis, and if you had it, according to Mosaic law, you were unclean. Nowadays, we got these COVID quarantines of 10 days or 14 days, depending how long y'all follow them. And, uh, but the quarantine for leprosy was permanent. It was until you were healed. And for many people, the first time they saw a spot on their skin, they knew that they would never hug their family again. So this leper sees Jesus. He hears about Jesus. And he thinks to himself, by chance, if I can make myself get close enough to Jesus, maybe he can pronounce a word of healing over my life. Certainly, every single person that he would have come around in contact with would have stayed away from him because nobody wanted to come into contact with a leper. This man sees Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus doesn't just pronounce a word of healing over his life. He walks toward him and he touches him. The things that would have repelled everybody else compelled Jesus to this man. Jesus walked toward the, the messiest of the messes in ancient Israel all throughout his life. 
Now, it wasn't just with leprosy. It was other situations where Jesus made himself at home with messy people. There's one scenario in Scripture where Jesus is being chastised and corrected and rebuked by all of these religious leaders who are saying, this dude, Jesus, is reclining with sinners and tax collectors. Everybody was mad at Jesus because he wasn't just teaching a message to people who were on the outskirts of life. He was breaking bread with them. Dinner back then was different than it is now. Uh, today, it would read like Jesus was, you know, having Chipotle with somebody, and it was like, you know, they were across the table from one another. What was happening in those times was, if you had dinner with someone, there wasn't like chairs. People would recline and lay down on mats, and they would spend hours and hours together, literally laid back and breaking bread together. And it bothered religious people so much that Jesus would take the time to just chill with them. Why is that? It's the same message that has been repeated all throughout his life in the message of the manger, which is, if Jesus can make himself at home in the mess that is the manger, he can make himself at home with whatever mess you might find your life to be in. Now, that's good news for us if we'll allow it to be good news. But it's bad news for us if we want to maintain self-sufficiency and uh, a life that is guided by ourselves for ourselves. The beauty of the Christmas story is that God invites us into something. God is inviting us into a real relationship with him that would mean that you would include Jesus in the messes of your life, not run away from Jesus with the messes out of your life. You know, as a pastor for the last eight years here at Renaissance, I've heard a hundred times where someone comes back and says, yeah, pastor, yeah, man, those last six months were rough, but you know, I'm straight now, I'm good now, I'm good now. We tend to do this thing where we feel that we have to run away from Christian community and probably Christ himself until we can fix the situation on our own because we believe this pernicious lie that Jesus will not be around us, that Jesus is not accessible to us, that he is not the source of our hope that we should be running to when we find ourselves in a mess. And the opposite is, is true. So one of the times, one of the things that I want us to focus in on this Christmas is my friend Jesus. And what is he inviting us into? To invite him into the messes that we find ourselves in, in our lives. Now, for some of you, life is great right now. And I just want you to put a pen in this message, take some notes, and pull this one back out, the notes tab, uh, when life becomes a little messy for you. But for others of you, if you find yourself in a situation right now, hopefully this will be helpful to you. Now, this is the hope of the Christmas message. Wherever we find ourselves, we can invite Jesus into that. So one of the things that I know makes people's life and faith so messy is, is doubt. Uh, once upon a time, you might have had like a really strong faith. Once upon a time, you used to really believe. Maybe for you, it was while you were, uh, before you moved to New York City, for those of you who are not from New York, that once upon a time, you turn to the scripture every single morning for devotional. And now you're not even sure what you believe about the Bible. Some of you right now are what most people would call as deconstructing your faith. You're trying to figure out what it is you actually believe. And today you're here in church or you're watching with us online because it's Christmas. And this is a thing to do. Here's what I want you to hear. Jesus can come into and inhabit and redeem the doubt that you have. He does not demand from us a perfect version of faith that is pristine, but he is comfortable in the mess that is doubt. So Jesus can handle your doubt. One of my favorite scriptures is in Mark 9, and it's a scripture about a man who brings Jesus, his son, who's struggling with epilepsy. 
So Jesus is out with his disciples, and oftentimes when Jesus was out, there'd be these huge crowds of people that come to him and form themselves around him because they heard his reputation as one who can heal people. So this one man brings uh, his son to Jesus, and it says, Teacher, I brought you my son. And he has all of these things going on. He's having convulsions. And this man is absolutely frantic. Now, when I was younger, uh, when I was about four or five years old, I actually had a seizure. And uh, my parents, the way they tell a story, uh, I was just sitting around at home. And then all of a sudden, my lips went blue, and I fell back. And my parents went into an absolute frenzy. My father is a very cool, calm, and collected man. He never gets too high or too low. Uh, my mother, on the other hand, uh, not the same could be said for her. When they pulled up to the hospital, they wheeled me in on one part, and they wheeled my mother in on, a, on a, another wheelchair. Like, well, he's here for a seizure. Why is she here? Like, long story, but just get to him right now. So when this story talks about a man whose son is struggling with epilepsy, this is not something that, uh, it's not a bunion. This is something that is serious for in the moment. This man is absolutely terrified of what's going on with his son. And in his terror, in his frantic state, he says to Jesus, Jesus, if there's anything you could do, if there's anything you can do, please have compassion on us and heal him. Jesus responds to the man and says, if everything is possible to the one who believes, and here's what the man says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a part of me that believes. There's a part of me that really does believe it brought me here. It's strong enough belief to have brought me to this place. But there's also another part of me that doesn't believe. And Jesus, what I need for you to do is not just to help my son, but I actually need you to help my unbelief. How does Jesus respond to this man? Does Jesus say, nah, brother, you got to go away till you are 100%. I deserve all your faith. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus heals a man's son. Jesus is tender. He will help you. He will strengthen the part of you that believes, and he will also help your unbelief. He's not afraid of the mess that you find yourself in, even if it is filled with doubt. You know, what matters more than anything is not how strong your faith is, but what you're putting your faith in. What matters is not the, ob is not the, the strength of your faith, but rather the object of your faith. So years ago, before global warming was what it was today, New York used to be really cold in the winters. And... Um, I grew up across the street from a lake, which is like five demerits on my, on my G-card right there. <laughs> and one winter, it was like so cold for so long that the lake froze. Like it froze so thick that they drove a, um, a city garbage truck on top of the lake. Like that's how frozen the lake was. And people were going out there ice skating, and I don't ice skate, black people don't ice skate, but <laughs> I did walk on the ice, and I'll never forget the trepidation I felt before I took a step out on the ice. And I wasn't convinced, even though I saw all the signs that would say that this thing is actually strong enough to hold you. And very gingerly and gently, I stepped out on the ice. And here's what I found. Weak faith in a strong thing will keep you up. It didn't matter how strongly I believed in the ice. The only thing that mattered was the ice was like two feet thick. And since the ice was strong, my weak faith on top of it was all that I needed. Some of you are concerned about the strength of your faith, and that is important. But more important than the strength of your faith is the object of your faith. What are you putting your faith in? And by putting your faith in, I know that kind of sounds like an amorphous term, 
What does that look like for you practically? I think it means the thing that you actually go to. I think it's the thing that you, you give your time and your energy to. Right? So I, I have faith in certain things. I have faith in certain people, and the people that I have faith in, I, I, I go to them. I trust them with things. And I think to a certain extent, having, putting your faith in Jesus means continuing to go to him, even when you're not 100% sure that it's going to go okay. You know, later in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, it introduces us to this character named, which has been named, unfortunately, Doubting Thomas. But his name really shouldn't be Doubting Thomas because there's a piece of Thomas in all of us. Thomas was a man who was following Jesus. He was one of the 12 disciples. And news came to the original 12 minus Judas, and it said that Jesus was resurrected. And his, the, the other disciples are excited, and Thomas says, yo, heard you. However, unless I see the holes in his hands, I am not going to believe. Jesus returns to the house. And what most of us think that Jesus would respond, how Jesus would respond is with chastisement, is with condemnation, is with like, how dare you doubt me? But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus says, where's Thomas? Thomas, here's my hands. Here's my hands. Here's a, the, the beauty of that story and what I think the invitation is for you, if doubt is a part of your story right now or will be in the future. What Thomas did was Thomas stayed around long enough for his faith to be fortified. Jesus, the scripture says in John 20 that Thomas was with the other disciples. He didn't leave. For some of you, you've left or you're tempted to leave because your faith is not as your confidence in whatever, the scripture, the resurrection, whatever the teachings of Jesus, they are just not what they used to be or you might feel like you are doubting. But here's the call from Jesus, the invitation from, you, from Jesus to you today. Stick around long enough for your faith to be fortified. Community, the hands and feet of Jesus will welcome you back in, and hopefully over time, you will see your faith restored and your doubts, some of those things that you realize um, weren't the, the mainstay of your faith in the first place. You know, y'all have seen those memes, it's like why women live longer than men, and it's like usually a dude on a ladder leaned against another ladder, <laughs> leaned against a tree, leaned against like the sidewalk, and it's like, bro, if anything goes wrong in any of these things, you're going to drop from like 63 feet and, you know, to your demise. And one of the things I've learned about faith is our faith is in some ways like, hold, is like putting up a ladder against something. If that thing moves that you're holding your life up against moves, then you're going to fall. For some people, you've struggled not because Jesus has fallen, but because you put your ladder of your faith against something that it was never meant to be up against in the first place. One of those things is church and leaders. Now, Christian leaders should be held to the highest standards. Honesty is something that must happen beginning in the church. This is not to excuse the scandals, the abuses, the things that happen in churches. However, people are people, and God has never called you to lean the ladder of your life and your faith on another person, but rather on Jesus and Jesus alone. So doubt is messy, but God can redeem it. Jesus can make himself at home in your doubt. Another thing that's messy is grief. Uh, grief is messy. Uh, one of the first things I tell people who are experiencing loss is that grief is unpredictable. There is a textbook definition of what grief should do in your life. 
that there's denial and anger, then bargaining, then depression, and then acceptance. But the truth is, uh, grief is not a linear process. Oftentimes, it takes way longer than you think it should take or will take, and oftentimes, it never really truly resolves. So my wife and I are both widowed, um, and I, I talk to a lot of people who have lost someone close to them, and they'll say, like, well, you know, I'm just kind of like, when do things get back to normal? And I'm like, they don't get back to normal. A new normal doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's different. And grief is a really complicating and messy process because in some ways, it's like a cloud that just hovers over your life. And when there's a cloud, yes, there is sun above that, but you really can't see it. So I talked to so many people, and they've told me over the years at Jordan, I can't come into service. Um, I can't come into service to hear the praise and worship because I can't sing those songs. When we're people on stage singing these songs, praising God, they say, Jordan, again, I want to be able to say that, but I cannot say that because my life is not there. They're so weighed down by the grief of life that they can't sing them. The good news is, in all of the mess that is life and grief, Jesus can inhabit those spaces. For some of you, the grief is not a loss of a person, but the loss of a dream. Once upon a time, you dreamed that your life would be a certain way, and now you are realizing that that will not be the situation in your life. Others of you are grieving uh, a relationship with someone that used to be tight that is now estranged or a divorce. And grief is messy because it sometimes makes you reevaluate what you thought you believed about God. Here's the good news of Christmas. With all of the grief and the disappointment we have with ourselves, the disappointment we have with God, that Jesus is comfortable with our grief. Isaiah 53 and 3 says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind. Jesus was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. What is the scripture trying to teach us in Isaiah? Isaiah is telling us that Jesus was well acquainted with grief, meaning he was not turned off by your grief or afraid of your grief. You know, one of the things that I can tell very quickly when I'm talking to anybody is, uh, particularly when someone is going through pain and people are going around trying to offer words of solace and, and hope, it's very evident very quickly who has never been through anything. Like, you would never have said that if you've actually been through some things. Jesus is well acquainted with grief. Jesus is the one in the room that everybody would turn to and look towards as a source, as the source, because he is well acquainted with grief. He's been around the grief block a hundred times, and he is the one, the source, that invites us to him. So here's what I want you to do. One of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life was called Praying Through Your Tears. And the preacher was talking about some of the most heartfelt and beautiful prayers are not these eloquent words, but they're rather mumblings that happen through tears. And if you find yourself in a season of grief, I want you to know this. Jordan Rice doesn't understand the depths of your grief, but Jesus does. He does. And he invites you to come to him with your grief, not to get it all figured out and fixed up and put a nice Christian platitude on top of it and then come to him with a nice praise that you can elevate in church, but to come to him with your real complaints, with the real sadness of your heart, knowing that he is well acquainted. He's been down that road, and he is the one that can lead us towards healing. Blessed are they the mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, for others of us, it's not grief, it's just disappointment. Uh, disappointment is the gap between what you expected and what you got. I've been there a hundred times, whether it's in life or whatever. 
And when we're disappointed, it just is messy, man. It's complicated for our faith. Now, another big one for many people is not necessarily grief or, 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 or doubt. It's shame. Shame is when we have done something that we should not have done or we didn't do something that we know we should have done. And as a result of it, it's not that we feel guilty for, for doing wrong or for sinning, but rather we feel like there is something fundamentally wrong with us as a result. And the first reaction to shame is to hide, is to run away. Because we believe that if anybody knew about what was going on in our life, and certainly God himself would not want to be anywhere near us if he knew the condition that we were in. Here's a message of the manger. If Jesus could make himself at home in that dirty, filthy feeding trough, he can make himself at home in whatever situation you find yourself in. Let me prove it to you. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke 7, and it says that Jesus is chilling with these Pharisees, and it says, then one of the Pharisees invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped, her feet, she wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with, his, with the per- perfume. When the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, yo, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. The religious assumption is that Jesus will only be near you or allow you near his presence if you are perfect and holy. Jesus' holiness is not diminished by sin. Jesus' holiness casts out sin. Jesus doesn't kick this woman away. And instead, Jesus tells a story, and eventually he forgives this woman for her sin. And those at the table, in verse 49, it says, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Here's the truth about Jesus. There's no sin that you've committed that he cannot forgive. There's no shame that you've tried to cover that he doesn't see and he still loves. There is no failed attempt that disqualifies you. There is no barrier presently in place that can keep him from you. All we need is confessed helplessness to access the presence of God. You know, there's two things I want us thinking about, particularly as it pertains to the situations and the mess we find ourselves with the sin in our lives. There's so many different tactics we can use to either deny it, to diminish it, to cover it up, to, or, or to run from it. But Jesus invites us to bring it to him. Scripture says in 1 John 1 and 9 that God is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus doesn't want us running away from him. He wants us running to him. Not just the first time you do it, but over and over again. There's a quote by Paul Miller. It says, in reality, we are making a mockery of the cross. Listen to those words. We are making a mockery of the cross by not going back to it. Isn't the blood of Jesus powerful enough to handle even repeated offenses? The power over that sin is received at the foot of the cross. The beauty of Christmas, the beauty of Jesus, is that Jesus... The things that repel even yourself, 
about yourself. Don't repel Jesus. But they allow Jesus to, Jesus invites us into a real relationship with him that we can bring him all of our sin. Not as a way to minimize it, but with confidence that he can handle it. That he actually can erase our sin. That he was actually the way that God preordained from the foundation of the world to nail all of our sin to the cross. You know, one of the things that we're doing here at Renaissance tomorrow night is something that I hope that you would all consider for those of you who this applies. Uh, we're having a baptism class, and over the years, I've talked to so many people who've been like, man, I want to like, rock with Jesus, but I got a lot of stuff I got to figure out before I even go to this baptism class. And there's an assumption that baptism is reserved for people who are doing fantastic, who just want to celebrate that fantastic life in front of other people. The opposite is true. Baptism is for people like this woman in Luke 7, who know they have no other recourse, and they want to turn their lives, the control over their lives, away from themselves and into Jesus' hands. If you have never made that like, public faith and declaration in Jesus, man, I would love for you to meet us in the lounge uh, and sign up for that baptism class. And it's a no-pressure class. You don't have to do anything with it. But we want you to hear about what it looks like for you to turn over your life into his hands. Not running away from him in shame, but trusting that he can make himself at home with you exactly where you are. So Jesus gives us an invitation this Christmas season. Jesus was not laid in a manger by accident. It is a major spiritual symbol. Animals went to the manger for physical food. But with Jesus laying on the hay, we can go to this manger for spiritual food. Jesus has an infinite storehouse of nourishment available. Grace to those who are in need joy to those who are struggling, and we can approach him anytime, and we will never go hungry. So in just a moment, we're going to worship together, but first I want to pray, and I want us to have some time of just about 10 seconds of silence to think about what is God's invitation to you this Christmas season? And what is the thing that you've been running away from God from, or running away from community from, and how might Jesus be inviting you to bring that to him? Jesus, we won't run. We won't run away from you. We want to run towards you, trusting that you can handle the mess of our life, trusting that you and your power came not to condemn the world but to save the world, that you didn't come to call the righteous but the sinners, that even while we were ungodly, Christ died for sinners. Help us to trust in you and your goodness this Christmas season. Help us to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.